you've been around on this podcast for a while, then you know that this is not the first time that we've addressed some discrepancies between what God has intended for his church and how we as flawed human beings have erroneously executed on that mission. The beautiful thing is that there is forgiveness and grace where we are willing to admit that, "Mm, Lord, we got that one wrong. However, we also have to admit that while forgiveness is available, the effects of false teaching, poor teaching, manipulation, and hypocrisy can lead to long-lasting issues, including church trauma, which ultimately pushes people away from the Savior they so desperately need, and I would say deserve. It takes a certain level of courage to confront hypocrisy within the church, especially when it's occurring at the hands of someone you love or someone who has a great impact, whether it's on your spiritual life or personal life, or it's someone who's popular or charismatic who has a lot of quote unquote fans or followers or someone who is powerful within certain church circles. But our allegiance and our commitment to Christ must supersede any ideas of human loyalty or relationship that we may experience. And while I certainly don't claim that confrontation is easy, I will never stop agreeing that it is necessary. So we would be wise to do what tonight's title suggests, and that's look twice at the two-faced man. Let's go. Hey friend, tonight I want us to dig into Galatians chapter 2 and talk about this somewhat touchy subject of confrontation, specifically confronting hypocrisy within the body. I want to be clear about that because it is not our job to confront hypocrisy in the world. By definition, the world's way of doing business is hypocritical, it's unstable, it's unwise, and really it's just a trap. So we would be constantly spinning our wheels if our focus was what um, we already know God has revealed is designed to fail. The standard that we are called to uphold as children of God is the one that we need to concern ourselves with. And so if we understand that, then we would know that all the time that we spend calling people out, canceling them and confronting the same people who've made it clear that they aren't subscribing to our beliefs, they are not playing by our rules, could be better spent holding one another accountable, sending a clear and consistent message to the world about who Christ is, praying for and serving those that belong to the body and those who don't yet. And overall, just advancing the kingdom. With that being said, acknowledging and addressing hypocrisy in the church when we see it isn't easy. And that's for several reasons. Generally, there's a stigma that confronting someone automatically means that you have a problem with them, that there's a beef, right? That you are intent on arguing or attacking that person. When in reality, confronting with the right intentions done the right way is a sign of love, both for the God we serve and the one that we don't want to see going astray or potentially leading other believers astray. This is important because confrontation needs to always have a goal, which should be correction and then reunification. Let's address the elephant in the room. Let's address what's going on. Let's correct it. And then let's get back on track. If you have a goal or an intent to confront someone in order to embarrass them, to argue, to make a point, or to exalt yourself and make yourself look or feel better, if you find yourself eager to be the one to do the confronting, I'm telling you now you're not the one. (laughs) Give that task to someone else because confrontation, especially of another believer or sister in Christ, can be bold. 
but it also needs to be with the goal of making someone better. In Galatians chapter two, we once again are reminded that our friend, the apostle Paul has no problem being bold and believe it or not, whether you agree with his delivery, his goal really is to make believers better. We find him here in Galatians chapter two, confronting an OG, the rock, Peter himself, regarding some hypocritical actions Peter was taking. Basically, when the Jews weren't around, Peter was cool with the Gentiles. Because remember, there had been some drama divide about whether the Gentiles were truly saved, if they hadn't been circumcised. And the original council of which Peter was likely a part of all agreed that circumcision was not necessary for the Gentiles to be accepted into the family of God, that all it required was faith in Christ, right? And so having had that belief when Peter was around the Gentiles, he socialized with them. He ate with them. However, when other Jews came from Jerusalem and were there observing Peter started acting different. He started acting funny. And his actions even led other leaders like Barnabas, known as the encourager, one of the church leaders who was called to minister to the Gentiles along with Paul. It even caused him to be led astray. And he himself started to act differently towards the Gentiles. And Paul was not going for it. So in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, we read this. But when Peter came to Antioch, and that was the first church that Paul and Barnabas had begun, says, when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face. This is Paul speaking. For what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. As a result, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy, and even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all of the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? <laughs> basically, Paul called Peter out in front of everyone. He says he opposed him face to face. And he basically was saying, when these people weren't around, you were living like the Gentiles do, eating with them, socializing with them. And it wasn't what the Gentiles were doing was wrong. It's just that Peter was not holding himself to the standard of all these Jewish laws that those traditional uh, Jewish believers were still holding themselves to, where they were still trying to integrate the law and faith together. Paul was saying, no, when you were just here with the Gentiles, you were living by faith in the same way that we're teaching everyone is saved by and lives by faith. However, now when these Jews come around, you're trying to impose all these rules again. Why are you imposing them on the Gentiles? You weren't living like that yesterday. You weren't doing that yesterday, right? And so this is important. Another thing that I really want to take note of in verse 14, when he says they were not following the truth of the gospel message, we have to be careful that when we are confronting someone that it's, again, holding them to the standard that is portrayed and revealed in the gospel of Christ, not our own traditions, not our own customs, not our own preferences, not our own expectations. What does the word of God say, right? Paul would have been doing both Peter, Barnabas, the other church leaders, and the Gentile believers a disservice if he had ignored Peter's hypocrisy. And we don't know exactly what Peter said to Paul in that moment in response, but we do know that Christianity continued to flourish through the Gentile nations. We do know that Peter went on to continue ministering to those he was called and empowered to minister to. We do know that he was so committed to his relationship with Christ that Peter died a horrific and painful death. And so I choose to believe, and I I think reason and logic support this, 
that Peter accepted the admonishment and adjusted his mindset. And I don't want to diminish how difficult that can be. Let's just take off our super spiritual hats and be real. No one, no one likes to be corrected. Even if that correction is fair, even if it's done in love, even if it's accurate and constructive, being corrected can be embarrassing. It can be humbling and especially frustrating if you know you're wrong and you were just kind of hoping nobody else would notice. Can we take it a step further? What about when the one corrected you is new to this, right? Let's just say you've been on the job since the foundation of the company, since it began. And then here comes an entry-level coworker who's identifying where you're messing up. We don't like that. <laughs> no. And not only are they pointing out our mistakes, but they're right. And they're not afraid to do it in front of other people. No, we don't. We don't like that either. And so, yes, there's a time and a place to confront. And in most situations, we also want to take in proximity of relationship. Meaning if I see a shortcoming in a friend of mine, it makes more sense for me to address it with him than for a random person who may be somewhere in our circle, who doesn't have the same type of access and intimacy with my friend that I have in order to have that kind of conversation. Does that make sense? Confrontation, especially when it's uncomfortable, is really just a byproduct of intimacy and close relationship. Relationship is not always going to be fun, right? It's not always going to be games and good times. Sometimes it's going to be hard, period. And some relationships can withstand that kind of honesty and others, and sadly I know this from experience, can't. But we have to be careful. While we are being diligent to take notice of hypocrisy in others, let us not forget to look twice at the two-faced man who may be staring back at us in the mirror. <laughs> now listen, this is not a call to condemn, not others and certainly not yourself. But it is a call to allow the Holy Spirit to convict and to be okay if that conviction comes through another person. I want you to think about David. He had an intimate relationship with God and he cried out to him often, poured his whole heart out to him, expressed his praise and his disappointment. God himself says that David, as flawed and sinful at times as he was, was still a man after God's own heart. He loved God. So if God and David had that kind of relationship, had God so desired, he could easily have confronted David himself and probably caused David to fall flat on his face. <laughs> Yet instead, God, in the wisdom that he has, chose to confront David's hypocrisy and sin through another person, the prophet Nathan. And we're going to talk about that after this short break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So we've been talking tonight about this very delicate art of confronting and why it's so important that we not miss opportunities to confront our brothers and sisters in Christ, but remembering that it has the ultimate goal of correction and reunification, that our confrontations can be bold and brave, but the ultimate um, end game is that we're making the person that we're confronting better. So we led up to the break talking about King David and how God used the prophet Nathan to confront David about his sin and his hypocrisy. So for a little bit of background, David at the point in scripture that we're talking about in 2 Samuel around chapter 11, David was king, right? 
He'd been anointed at a young age. He'd run forever from Saul. Finally, he has been crowned king. And he has been kinging successfully for a hot little minute. And one day, while his troops were out to battle, which is where David as king was supposed to be, that's where he was supposed to be, David decided he was just going to hang back and chill at the castle, right? So during a stroll on the rooftop, he noticed a beautiful woman just existing. She was minding her business in bathing, and her name was Bathsheba. A connection, bathing, Bathsheba, I don't know. Nevertheless, he sent for her. Now, we're not going to go too deep into this because I don't want to disparage David, but I do want us to be real about what was happening. A woman in that time was not going to have the right to consent or not consent to whether she was going to be with the king, right? Who was she to say no once she was sent for? So what we have to realize here is that what very likely happened is that David raped Bathsheba right? Because if there's no consent, if there's no opportunity to give or to not give consent, what do you call that? Moving on. Not only did he likely violate her, but he impregnated her. And did I forget to mention that Bathsheba was married? And where was her husband Uriah during all of this? Exactly where he was supposed to be, in battle, fighting valiantly for his country and king. So David realizing he's in quite a pickle, right? Sent for Uriah to return home. Now he tried to get Uriah drunk and convince Uriah to go home and lay with his wife Bathsheba. Why? Well, because then when Bathsheba, you know, was showing and it was, you know, realized that she was pregnant, everyone would think, oh, the baby is Uriah's. Remember he came home from war. After all, if they didn't sleep together, how in the world did Bathsheba get pregnant if her husband is away? So what David didn't count on was that Uriah would be a man of greater integrity and character than he. And so Uriah refused to go home and enjoy the comforts of his wife, knowing that he had brothers out on the battlefield. Plan foiled. David then executes plan B and tells his army commander Joab to place Uriah at the most dangerous spot on the battlefield so that he'll likely die. And he did. David then marries Bathsheba and the baby she was pregnant with dies. They have another child who you've probably heard of. His name was Solomon, thought to be the richest and wisest king to ever live, except he died dumb. Apparently he had a problem with women too. Maybe his 700 plus wives and concubines had something to do with that. I don't know. I digress. But the portion of scripture I really want you to pay attention to is 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 26 through chapter 12, verse 8. So 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 26 through chapter 12, verse 8. And it's called Nathan rebukes David. And the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David. He came and said to him, so this is what Nathan says to David. There were two men in a city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had purchased and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It ate his food, drank from his cup, it lay in his arms, and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler, a visitor, came to the rich man, and to avoid taking one from his own flock or herd to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him, the rich man took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for his guest. 
David's anger burned intensely against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall make restitution for the ewe lamb four times as much as the lamb was worth because he did this thing and had no compassion. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you as king over Israel, and I spared you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and put your master's wives into your care and under your protection. And I gave you the house, the royal dynasty of Israel in all of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. What happened here? You heard the the story, but just to summarize, Nathan comes to David and tells him this story about a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had loads of lambs and flock at his disposal. The poor man only had one, one that he loved dearly. A traveler came through town to visit the rich man, and the rich man, even though he had all these these herds and flocks at his disposal, decided, "Mm, I don't want to kill one of my own. I'm going to take the one that this poor man has, the one that he cares about, and I'm going to use that one for this feast to sacrifice for my visitor. David felt all of this indignation, right? He's seeing the speck in the other person's eye. All of this indignation, how dare he? This man that did this must pay restitution four times for what he's done. And Nathan had to say, friend, (laughs) King David, um, bro, that's you. You are the rich man. And we know that David then felt convicted. It's because of these actions that the Lord had told him that trouble was never going to leave his house. And as you go on to read uh, the rest of 2 Samuel um, on into uh, the kings, you'll learn that there was always trouble in David's house from this point going forward, especially amongst his children. There was also a rape of one of a daughter by by one of his sons. It's just a mess, right? The trouble really never left David's household because he failed to um, have character and integrity in his dealings with Bathsheba. Uriah's wife. And so we see here that it can be so easy to see the wrongdoing in others, the sin, the hypocrisy, and we can even become angered by it and yet not be able to see that same fault within ourselves. Many of us are familiar with Matthew 7, 5 that says, you hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye, and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. Let's think about this. What makes a person a hypocrite isn't that they um, also make mistakes. It isn't that they can identify issues that their friend is having. It's that they are so focused on another person's issues that they can't see their own. And truth be told, their perception of the speck that they believe to be in their friend's eye can be skewed because they can't see clearly themselves past the log in their own eye. If you want to help your brothers or sisters in Christ, then you have to keep your eyesight clear. That means being willing to acknowledge when you yourself are falling short, the areas where you are double-minded, where you are sending mixed signals, where you are being a hypocrite. We can't have a standard of holiness for others, but extend unending grace to ourselves. There has to be a balance. Speak truth in love, but make sure that the first person you're speaking to is yourself. So whether we're addressing our log or our friend's spec, here are just a few ways I want to close out with you uh, so that you can make sure that you're being honest with yourself 
as I'm being honest with myself and others about the current state of our relationship with God. This is how we can make sure that we don't have a log that is skewing our perception. One, ask God to reveal any hidden sins that we may not be aware of. There are some things that we do that are just outright rebellious and we know we're wrong. We know we're dead wrong. But there are other times where whether it's because of, because of ignorance, and that's not a dig, that's not an insult, that's not shade. Ignorance just means you really don't know. You really don't know. And so whether it's because we're being ignorant or because we've been misled or mistaught, there's something that we could be doing that we don't even, we're not even aware of. Trauma produces all types of responses in us. Our experiences shape and form us. Ask God to reveal any hidden sin that we may not be aware of. Number two, listen to those nudges from the Holy Spirit and be sure to respond immediately. The reason why responding immediately is so important is that over time, just like any two materials rubbing together, that area can become worn and calloused. If the Holy Spirit keeps pressing upon your heart in a certain area and you're not responding and they have to keep pressing and keep pressing and keep pressing, that area is going to become callous. And sooner or later, you're not going to feel those nudges, those promptings of the Holy Spirit anymore. And that's a dangerous place to be. We need to be able to be in sincere and intimate fellowship with the Holy Spirit at all times. He is the one that teaches us. He is the one that guides us and leads us. And he He's also the one that convicts and transforms us. Number three, when you know and it's been brought to your attention that you've done wrong, be humble enough to apologize and reconcile that relationship or that situation if you can. I understand it's not always up to you. Sometimes there's things that are done and the other person relationship no longer wants to be in relationship. That's outside of your control. But when someone has brought something up to you, be mature enough to say, you know what? I, I either didn't intend it that way, or maybe you did. Maybe you were being a little spicy, right? But I can see that that's hurt you, and I'm sorry. Or I can see that what I did may have led someone astray, may have been a stumbling block. I apologize. I'm going to go address that with them to make sure that I'm in right standing with God, first and foremost, and that our relationship is with, in right standing with one another. So we want to ask God to reveal any hidden sin we may not be aware of. We want to listen to the nudges from the Holy Spirit and respond immediately. When it's been brought to our attention or we know we've done wrong, we're going to be humble and mature enough to apologize and reconcile that relationship or situation if we can. Number four, we're going to ask for forgiveness often and give forgiveness generously. We are flawed human beings. We are going to mess up. And so we're going to be, again, humble enough to ask God for forgiveness and gracious enough to give others forgiveness as well. Number five, we're going to repent from our wrongdoing. So we're not just going to feel bad about what we've done. We're not going to carry around guilt and shame. True godly sorrow means we're going to turn our hearts from that thing and we're not going to do it anymore. It would not have hit the same if Peter had said, you know what? You're right. I am. I'm being two-faced. I'm being a hypocrite. And then the next week he went right back to doing the same thing. That would have caused a divide and disunity within the body, right? So whatever it is that God reveals um, that you are doing and the Holy Spirit says, uh-uh, we need to stop you really need to stop. And it doesn't mean that you're always going to succeed on that first try. If you mess up, ask for forgiveness, confess that sin and repent again. If you fall, you get up and you try again, but your heart's intention, 
followed up by your actions are that you are turning away from this thing. You agree with what God has to say about it, and you're not going to intentionally do that anymore. And last but not least, through the process of being confronted or being the one who's doing the confronting, we're going to pray for healing. We're going to pray for our healing and for the healing of anyone who may have been affected by any type of inconsistent or hypocritical actions, whether they were ours or someone else's. Because again, the goal of confrontation is to correct, is to fix it. It's to reconcile and reunify the relationships and the body of Christ as a whole. This can be tough, but this is the work that we came to do. This is growth. And when we do it, it frees us up to focus on what really matters. We cannot afford to let inconsistency or hypocrisy within our faith weigh us down or hold us back. Ain't nobody got time for that. (laughs) I love you, friend. I'm Shania, and this is Rooted.